for millennia, followers of Jesus have spoken and written about the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you were here last week, we started to talk about the devil. <laughs> if you missed it, we'd love to have you to catch that up. Um, there's this, this is part two to that, so if some of this doesn't make sense, that's your problem. <laughs> but here's the thing. All three of those things, the flesh, the world, and the devil, have all dropped out of our conversations. They've all dropped out of the lingo of the world that we live in. Um, and so often, I think we struggle, and we struggle to experience the life that God intended us to live in our world. And if we're honest, there, there seems to be a literal struggle. There seems to be a literal sense of, of pushback to what it looks like to follow Jesus. And it comes from within, and it comes from outside of us. And so what I'm hoping is, is over the next number of weeks that this kind of ancient paradigm of the enemies of the soul will help us, will help us to figure out what things are holding us back, what lies we're believing, um, and what things we're sucked into. Last week, we talked about Jesus's perspective on the devil. And for Jesus, I just want to remind us, for Jesus, the devil is real. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and if you are making that pattern in your life, you're wanting that pattern to be real in your life of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, you and I are going to have to begin to adopt Jesus' view of the world. Jesus' view of the world includes the idea that the devil is real and that the devil's real... Um, goal is to murder, is to murder life, murder the image of God in you. And his strategy is lies. And so that's kind of what we covered last week. It just took me a long time to do it. So apologies. Sorry, not sorry. So for Jesus, here's, here's where we're going today. Deception is the root of everything. Uh, and and it is root of everything wrong, is the root of everything wrong in us. And at its core, temptation really is the temptation to believe a lie and to believe a lie and an illusion about reality. And we talked about truth and what reality is and what lies are and how ideas play into all that. And Jesus plays all of this deception language, all of this conversation he plays that. He, he, he's the root of that is a creature he calls the devil. Now, think about this. What comes to mind for us when we think about the devil, and for some of you who have kind of tracked your life of following Jesus throughout maybe the next few, last few decades, uh, there's this term called spiritual warfare. And, um, and there's, there's, there's kind of an accurate view of that and an inaccurate view of what that is. When we think of the devil, devil, we think of like demonization or some horror movie or a disaster or a dark, scary story from the middle of the night kind of an idea. And there's legit stuff to that, but there's also like paranoia and superstition and all of that too. So we'll get into some of that stuff down the road. But the devil's primary strategy, I'm going to throw this back on the screen. On the screen. 
from, from last week. The devil's primary strategy is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires in us that are normalized in a sinful society. Okay, so this is kind of like our working thesis for where we're going in this whole thing. And so this week, I'm planning to go deeper on this hypothesis. And the tricky thing about lies is they frequently masquerade as truth. They actually look pretty true, right? Um, And so the classic thing, if you meet people who are really good at lying, um, and hopefully this doesn't turn you into that person, but um, if you meet people who are really good at lying, they're like really good at saying 98% of things true, and then that 2%, that really important 2%, is the stuff that gets kind of fuzzy, gets kind of backwards. Or... Um, maybe, maybe it's like some of the truth, uh, the ones that are totally true, but not the whole truth. Like some of the truth is just totally left out, which is basically every political conversation right now. Um, it's just like, well, yeah, that's kind of, but wait, what about, you know, and there's just a lot of that happening in our world right now. So what's really hard is we have work to do and we have work to do because I think Jesus kind of lays out some some great stuff in the, in the passage we looked at last week that we're going to take a look at today. So in context, okay, Jesus, is, we're going to go to John chapter 8. Jesus is not speaking to a, like a group of atheists on a college campus. He is actually in a conversation with religious leaders, okay? Church leaders, Jewish synagogue leaders. Listen to this. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil. Just like I said last week, it's not something you want to hear from Jesus. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So what Jesus does here is really brilliant. It's really, it's spot on. He, he ties the strategy of the devil, these lies, okay, with the story of the snake in the garden. So he, he ties these religious leaders and what they're saying all the way back to Genesis 3. And we're going to Genesis 3 because I think this is so important. So if you're new to the Bible and you've probably heard the story of the talking snake in Scripture. And um, here's the thing. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, and as a kind of a late modern Westerner, um, it's easy to write off this story and then the rest of Scripture because it feels a little bit cartoonish. However, there's so much truth to it. So however you read the story, and we're not going to get into, you know, literal or any of that stuff. If you read it as history or if you read it as mythology, it is an ancient Near East story about the origin point of evil. And so I really don't care how you read it, okay? And, and that might freak some of you out, but I really don't care how you read it. This is not primarily a question about genre of literature as it is theology, And so the question is about the outcome of the story. 
the truth of the outcome of the story. And so for millennia, here's what I would argue, it's actually played out to be true in humanity. And that's what we're going to get into today. It says this in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, God made this animal. Okay, so there's this like interesting play here. He is crafty. This this creature is crafty, cunning. Another word for this creature would be wily and deceitful. So this creature is not called the devil here, but it's later called that by Jesus and the New Testament writers. And so we read that this creature is crafty and it's a sham. He says to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. What's interesting here is this is just an open-minded question. It's an open-minded question getting the woman to actually question, to getting the woman to actually respond out of um, an inquisitive nature. And in ancient Near East circles, you just need to understand that people were not dumber then. So when this was story was told... It wasn't told as if people actually believed snakes could talk. This was a story told and communicated um, to the earliest um, people of God. And so she was not surprised at all. And that's how we know that this, this, you know, they weren't dumber than we are. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so as, as we said last week, the serpent, remember the serpent doesn't come to Eve with, you know, he comes to Eve with, malevolent, with bad intentions. <laughs> And he doesn't come with her with a, uh, with a sword or a stick. He comes to her with an idea. That's what he does. He comes to her with an idea, with a deceptive idea that starts to play to her desire, to her heart. And this is how he brings ruin, not only to the world, but to us, to you and me. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also... Here's that word, desirable, for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord their God. Among the garden tree, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? I just think that's a funny line. And sorry, have you, <laughs> have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me she gave some fruit gave me some fruit and from the tree and I ate it. So the root problem here is interesting it's like a double blame shift 
of Adam, the woman that you gave me, right? So it's like, he's like, he's like working the triangle, right? Like that I'm doubly not responsible, right? <laughs> Which is, here's the thing. This is like the root problem in many of our relationships. It's the inability to actually take responsibility and to own up to our, our junk and our crud. Uh, that's the marriage sermon, all right? So you know how I don't do marriage series? That's it. The end. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, listen to this, deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put that word in between you and the woman. I don't know what is happening with my mouth. Gosh. I had a wedding yesterday, and maybe that's it. Maybe I'm already at my word limit. Right, babe? And this is the beginning between you and your woman and the woman. And this is the beginning. It's a fight. It's a war between offspring. He, notice it's singular, will crush your head. He's talking to the serpent. And you will strike his heel. This is the first hint we get of Jesus, the Messiah. And that closing line is what Jesus is referring to in John 8. He calls the temple leaders the seed of the snake. He calls them the offspring. He's like, biologically, you are offspring of Abraham. Spiritually, where your allegiance lies, you're the offspring of the devil. And Jesus ties the devil in this, in, in this strategy to this story. And we're going to take a closer look at the nature of lies. And what are the lies that are going on here? And kind of what are these lies for us? So the three, the three great questions in life are, who is God? Theology. Throw this up on the screen. Who is God? Theology. Who are we? Who am I? Right? And that's anthropology, identity kind of work. And then the last one is, what is the good life? How do we live? Okay? Morality, sociology. Like, how does that all then come together? The devil comes at Eve about lies about all three of these categories. The devil begins to unravel for Eve these three questions. So theology, who is God? Verse 5, she says, or he says, sorry, the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So translation is, God is not who he claims to be. He's holding something back from you. And it's a distortion of who God is, a distortion of who God is, of God and a God who is generous, a God who has good intentions for his creation into a God who is petty and manipulative. Second question is, who are we? Who am I? What does it mean to be a human being? He says, you will be like God. Translation, you are not a human being with a place 
you know, in, in the cosmos, you know, you, below the creator, kind of below the creator, above the creation. That's not your place. Um, you don't have both potential and limitations on your side. Uh, you, your image of God, you know, and, and made from the dust, that's not, don't pay attention to that, the devil says. And with design in your mind and your body and everything that you are, no, you can ascend to the high. You can be free from your limitations and be whatever you want to be. You can transcend and transgress all of your limitations. Be whatever, do whatever you want to be and do. Be true to yourself. Go with your gut. Listen to your heart. Does that sound familiar at all? Like, is that like stuff we're swimming in in our culture? And, and we just, we feel it. We, we experience it. These are not late modern Western secular ideas. These are ancient human desires and ideas. Okay? And then the third question he comes at with Eve is this. What is the good life? How do we live? He says, when the woman, well, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Translation, ignore all of these other trees in the garden that have God's full blessing and yield everything that you need to flourish as a human being and focus on the one tree that does not have God's blessing. These are still, I would argue, the go-to lines of the deceiver for all of us. We're still hit with these all the time. Lies about who God is, lies about who we are, and lies about what the best life is. And the, the exact nature of the lies change from generation to generation. They change from culture to culture. And they change even from demographic to demographic. It's just, it's just how it is. But they always run along these lines. Who is God? Who am I? And what is life all about? For instance... Um, in this kind of post-Christian culture we live in? Who is God? You ask that question to most people, and they're like, there is no God. Or, um, you know, we don't know, so, you know, the, the, the agnostic kind of, you know, well, we don't know. But here's the thing. Most of those, those, those understandings, they, they push back against this notion about a God that, hey, we're, we're scientific now. Um, secularism, ultimately, for for all intents and purposes, is, is basically the belief that this attempt to live in an entire society, actually, to live as if there is no God. And disaster happens because the next two questions actually come from the first one. So another way to say this is our morality is based on our anthropology, which is based on our theology. Or to put it better, what we believe about the good life is based on what we believe about what it means to be human, which is based on what we believe about God or no God. Does that make sense? It all has, it all comes together. So you change anything in those equations, it's going to change your belief about who God is. And what's interesting is 
we're left with, for some of us, we just get left with, we get stuck in kind of um, a Twitter feed of life, right? That we just hear enough things that sound true. They sound kind of true. They sound mostly true. They even sound emotion, like there's emotion behind it, and, and that sounds like it could work, but it leaves us empty. The strategy works like a charm. Here's the question, and this is why, you know, the, the question I'm wrestling with, and I think we, we should all wrestle with, is why this strategy? Why is it deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society? Why is that? Why do we still fall for it? And here's my thesis. Here's my idea. Here's my hypothesis. It is by spirit and truth, and you're going to hear this all through Scripture. We'll get into it in a second. It is by spirit and truth, okay, that we are transformed into the image of Christ, and we are set free to live. We're set free to live all, you know, with all that is good in the world. And it is by isolation and lies that we're actually deformed into the image of Satan and enslaved into evil and death. Now, that sounds like a super intense statement. Um, probably not going to tattoo that. Right? No? Probably not. So let me take the next four hours and I'll just lay this out. <laughs> Come on. It'd be awesome. All right. Ten minutes. Spirit and truth. I wish I had time to take you through scripture on this. If you want to take a deep dive, spirit and truth is all throughout scripture. We're transformed into the image of Jesus by spirit and truth. And um, Gordon Fee, who's a fantastic commentator, his definition of the spirit is God's empowering presence. So what is the spirit of God? What are we talking about when we say spirit and truth? The spirit of God is the presence and the power of God himself. That's what spirit is. Truth, talked about last week, is that which corresponds to reality or what you run into when you're wrong, okay? And so let me just make a basic, simple example. Um, you're in a room with someone. And it, if you have spirit and no truth, uh, it's like presence and no meaning, okay? There's presence and no meaning. So you're in a room with somebody, uh, and if you don't know them, if you're just you and them in a room, it's kind of creepy because you don't know them. But um, if you're in a room with them, uh, you might experience their presence. But if there's no truth, it doesn't change your life. It's not life-changing. Does that make sense? But, if, but, if, but the flip side is if, if there's truth and there's no presence, um, it, it, that can be kind of cruel. So no one's ever come up to me and say, Ryan, my life changed when I was reading Wikipedia the other day. Like, I mean, I just felt, you know, God moving in me with Wikipedia. No, that never happens. The idea is that there's this, this dual and, this both and. So we need the presence of God to, to shepherd you into the right truth at the right time. We need both spirit which is presence, God's presence and power, and, and truth, both, both presence and meaning, both relationship and reality at the same time. That's what changes us. 
That's what transforms us. Now, the incarnation is, this is why the incarnation is so important. Jesus, God himself coming in human flesh to be presence, to be with us, okay? To be human, to touch and feel and hear and and smell and taste and, and live with us, humanity. And he came as a teacher. He came as one, as the scripture says, with authority, right? Jesus is spirit and truth, presence and relationship with truth and meaning. Example, good parenting. Parenting is a tricky biz, amen? I hate saying amen like that, so (laughs) pass that, scratch that, rewind, whoop. Right? I don't know why I said that. I'm trying to like not be that guy. So, <laughs> good parenting is spirit and truth. Good parenting is presence, right? I mean, when you think about so many stories of people who who just have struggled in their life. And and it goes back to, well, my dad left when I was this age. Or or, uh, my mom didn't really pay attention to us. We just kind of, she's just like, just don't hurt yourself. And it was just, you know what I mean? You had these conversations with people and we were all affected by our parenting, our parents, and we all affect our kids with our parenting. But the idea behind this is good parenting is both presence and truth. We're like, in lives, there's congruence between what we're saying with our children and being with them and loving on them and caring for them and, and shepherding them in the right direction. And yet, it's also about truth, right? So many of the lies that we hear or we heard uh, sometimes as in our growing up or about our identity, some of them came from our parents. Some of them came from other people in our lives, right? And so this idea that good parenting is actually spirit and truth. It's just a powerful thing. It's a powerful reality. It's like what most of us really struggle with when we're in therapy or when we're dealing with life choices and things like that. Because it is spirit and truth that we are formed. And it's by isolation and lies that we are deformed. So how does the devil bring ruin? Even before the devil lies... He gets Eve alone. It's a strategy. He gets Eve alone. Away from God. It's, an, it's a literary device. Okay? And away from community. He's away f- she's away from her husband. When this idea begins to form. She's alone with her own voice, her own desires. And she's easily manip- manipulated. And those doubts are planted. And, and, and the intentions are, you know infused in her. And this is still how it's done today. This is the devil's signature move. Any basketball fans in the room? Okay. Three. Four. Whatever. Um, This is going to work for you guys. The pick and roll. The pick and roll. If you don't know what the pick and roll is, it's a signature basketball move. And what's amazing is good teams can pull off the pick and roll 
over and over and over again. And teams are just like, what just happened? Well, it was the same play that just ran, they just ran last time down the floor. And good teams can pull it off over and over and over. Why do coaches practice the pick and roll? Because it works. And you can see it coming, and you're just like, oh. This is a signature move of the devil for us. It's getting us alone. Or here's the thing. We're in the company of people who are a bad presence. When Keelan was younger, totally going to pick on Keelan. This has nothing. Well, it has to do with Keelan, but it's not. It has to do with our parenting. Sleepovers. Ten-year-old boys at a sleepover. It's not a good idea. Like, do whatever you want, parenting-wise. But we've always found, like, ten-year-old boys after 11 p.m. don't make good group decisions. (laughs) They just don't. I don't care if they're Sunday school boys. I don't care what they are, okay? They're just little fallen creatures. And so they're just, that's just, that's the deal. And why do I know this? Because I was one. True story. This isn't in my notes and I'm going to get in trouble. But when I was 10, we had a sleepover. My dad was out of town. It was just my mom. Such a bad idea. Kathy Ashley, come on. And so, you know, we, I mean, we didn't stay in the house, right? So... I was also kind of a naive young man, and I'm like, hey, guys. And I thought, you know, this was what you do at sleepovers. Let's go, instead of raid the refrigerator, I thought the word was rape the refrigerator. (laughs) Learn that one. Anyhow, that wasn't in the notes. That was a freebie. Where's the idea? The idea behind the, the whole deal was like, hey, Keelan's got some friends. They want him to have him over. I'm like, ah, a couple of these kids seem a little shady. Yeah, they... I'm like, here's the deal. We're going to pick you up at like 10, 10.30. And he's always like, what? And then he was always happy we got him because he's a little bit more of an introvert. And by that time, he was pretty much done with him anyway. But here's the thing. <laughs> he would tell you that. He's right there. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what we always heard the next week from other parents. Did you hear what they did? <laughs> did you hear what happened? I'm like, no. So great. We always tell our kids, and I've always told, I've been a youth minister for years, your friends will determine the direction and quality of your life. They will. And it's just being, and you know this too, the flip side, just being in the presence of good people will transform you. And it's even in the digital age, it's even easier for us to isolate ourselves and to cut our mind off from the presence of God. It's just easier. Our small group on Thursday nights, we're reading the screw tape leathers at the same time as we're going through all this. And it's just fascinating. It's just a great, it's a satire piece, C.S. Lewis. Um, I would encourage you to pick it up. It's just idea he's talking about distracting the patient and isolating the patient from everybody else. And we're all pulled by the inertia of individualism and, 
you know, in secrecy and autonomy, and, and you see it played out in all the, the, you know, the shows we watch and things like that. So if this is right, and this is the thesis, if it is by the spirit and truth that we're transformed, and if it's by lies and isolation that we're deformed, okay, if that's true, then how do we mitigate this? How do we do this differently? How do we recognize the pick and roll, right? Like, how do we do this? Luke chapter 4. And sorry if I'm sitting a lot. I've just been weddings, you know. <laughs> Am I right, Vance's? Right. Vance's just got married two weeks ago. Yeah. Week ago. Week ago. It's two weddings ago, but it was a week ago. That's how it goes. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Tends to do it. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. A little background here. Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and the heavens opened, and he heard a voice from the heavens saying, this is my son. And the first word out of the tempter's mouth is if. If. If you are the son of God. This goes right after his identity. What does Jesus do? He quotes his favorite book, Deuteronomy. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their, their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to you, to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, again from Deuteronomy, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and then this is the devil quoting scripture. He's like, two can play at this game. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, Deuteronomy for the win. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So really quick, what's happening here is a retelling of Genesis 3. So what's happening. Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve failed, where we all have failed. Jesus succeeds. We will get into the victory of Jesus over sin and atonement theory and all of that down the road. But for now, here's what I want you to know. How does Jesus win over this struggle? How does he, how does he recognize the pick and roll? There's no screaming. Jesus doesn't argue. There's no... It's a conversation. It's not a shouting match. Jesus is fasting. He's in solitude. 
And I think what's really important for us to understand is spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. Daily in the word, uh, getting alone in solitude and, and f- you know, wrestling out some of those lies in our lives. Uh, this is what Steve Porter says. Steve Porter is a, uh, is a theo- theologian out of Biola University. He says this, the disciplines are embodied practices in a physical world. So it's what we do in our body in a very physical world, okay? Whereby we present ourselves to the immaterial reality of the spirit, presence, and word, truth of Christ. It's as if we choose out of our own will to do something very physical, with our mind and our body and present ourselves to the presence of God and to the word of God. It's a very powerful thing. We set our mind and body into an encounter mode, like that we can encounter the presence of God and the truth of God. This is uh, Dallas Willard. Listen to this. As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that our thoughts, that our first movements towards toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. The process of spiritual formation to becoming like Christ in Christ is one of the progressive is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that fill the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. So we begin to see him and ourselves and our world the way Jesus does. We trade our mental maps for his mental maps. Now, whose responsibility is it to curate your thought life? Yours. I mean, it's just like... It's yours. (laughs) I mean, I'd love to manipulate your thoughts, but that would be bad. (laughs) It's your responsibility and mine to to, to curate our own thought life. God loves and respects your human dignity, your free will so much that he gave you the ability to choose that. Now, the mind can be the greatest area of freedom or the greatest area of slavery in our life. I mean, you talked to Viktor Frankl, Frankl of, of you know, these, these Jewish uh, uh, concentration camps. He talked about this idea of, of, of being totally free even though his body was in slavery and in prison. And we do not take this seriously enough. And for all of our freedom... Our physical freedom in the West, many of us are very slaved up here. So it's Jesus, is what he's saying is, is how do you open your mind to God? God, what is pleasing to you? And, and here's the thing. 
I personally have the capacity. I'm not talking about willpower here. I have the capacity to get myself into community. I have the capacity to get myself into solitude. I have the capacity to come to church regularly on Sunday morning, ready to participate and encourage others on Sunday. I can do that. Here's what I cannot do. I cannot switch off a wound in my life. I cannot switch off an addiction in my life. I can't just like flip a switch and fix those things. You cannot flip a switch and fix a father wound. But you can fill your mind with Jesus. You can fill your mind with the teachings of Jesus and begin to see those lies just start to fall away. And you watch what the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God will do, and He transforms your mind from the inside out. You just watch. And this happens in community. This happens in, listen, Netflix is a spiritual discipline. Let's just be honest with you. We are all being formed. It's just if it's intentional or not, right? Does this open up for me? The question is, whenever I'm doing anything, does this open up for me spirit and truth, or does this open up to me isolation and lie? One's got to be stronger than the other. The way of Jesus has got to be stronger if you want to be transformed. And here's the thing. This is the grace part, grace and capacity. God will give you the grace and the capacity far beyond what you have. But he will not coerce and control your thought life. Jesus will not do that. It's a decision out of his sovereignty to respect you and to invite you into following, into presence and truth. Last quote, and we're done. James A.K.A. Smith, he said this. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind, but he's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. God wants you to change your loves and your longings into his. And so how do, how, let me just two questions for us. How have you isolated yourself? How out of pain or sin or regret or, or whatever, wounding, have you isolated yourself? Have you allowed yourself to be isolated off? And what lies are you wrestling with? What are the lies? Like if you really spend some time alone, you're going you're gonna to hear these lies. And I would encourage you to write these things down. And then get with people that you love, that you care for, like care for you, and, and just spill those out. Like, I've been believing this. Is this true? My guess is they're going to tell you that is not true. That's coming out of the shadows. Ladies and gentlemen, that's transformation. And so let me pray, and we're going to bring this all to the table.